0: As we open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Lord, our God, you light our lamp and enlighten our darkness. Your way is perfect and your word always proves true. You are a shield for all who take refuge in you. So we pray that you would enlighten us now by the power of your spirit, that we may know and keep your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12. And we're going to start our reading at verse 9 of Romans chapter 12 and read through the end of the chapter. Uh, You'll find Romans 12 on page 1205 of many of our pew Bibles. Romans is between the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians. And So these words will be familiar to us. We read them often for our law reading. We also pray them sometimes as a congregational prayer. Uh, So hopefully these words are are familiar to us and are a wonderful description of what the Christian life should look like by God's grace. And so Romans chapter 12, we're going to begin our reading at verse 9 and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. May he bless it to us. We want to think about this passage this evening in connection with the sixth commandment. Uh, That commandment that states simply, you shall not murder. Um, It's a commandment that we know well, that we understand well, we understand what it means to murder. Um, We know that murder is bad. If you don't know that, write that down in your notes. Murder is bad. Um, And oftentimes we know as we come to this commandment that God is not just talking about actually physically killing someone but also saying that there are other kinds of murder that live in our hearts, that live in our attitudes, that we commit in other ways. Uh, The Catechism helpfully gives a name to this. It calls these things disguised forms of murder. They are not as open and obvious as murders that are committed in the world, but they are disguised forms of murder. Things that are murder, even if they don't seem like they are. Uh, that was one of the things that Jesus brought and shed light upon in his Sermon on the Mount, the true nature of murder and what constitutes murder. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus said, "'Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire.'" All those kinds of things are disguised forms of murder, according to our Lord. The Apostle John teaches the same thing when he says in 1 John 3.15, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Uh, These forms of murder are disguised. They're not as open and obvious as physically killing someone, but they are violations of this command. And one of the things the catechism does helpfully tell us is oftentimes it's these very forms of disguised murder that, if unchecked, will grow out into full flower and sometimes will actually be carried forward into actual murder. Um, You might remember that when Cain's offering was not accepted, he went out angry. And the Lord came and spoke to him in Genesis 4 and said, why are you so angry? Sin is crouching at your door and desires to have you, and you must master it. And what was the Lord teaching at that very first moment? That there was a disguised form of murder already in the heart of Cain. Um, And that was at work, and it was desiring to master him. And the Lord's word to him was, if left unchecked, this will grow out to murder. And of course, we know the sad conclusion of that story he did not check his murder his attitude it did get mastery over him and he went out to the field with his brother and he killed him um, and that's why this is such a serious matter not just to fully understand you know every aspect of a murder in a kind of theological sense so that we can rightly define it if someone were to ask it but to understand the anatomy of how sin tends to work that these disguised forms of sin that exist in our thoughts and in our speech can grow out if unchecked to deeds and to actual physical murder. And that's why the Lord helpfully says to us, we need to root out these forms of murder even in the heart. We need to be aware of them lest they ever you know, blossom into full flower, into actual physical kinds of murder. I was reading a detective novel recently, and one of the detectives sort of made an interesting comment. There was a murderer, and this one policeman said to another, you know, a lot of murderers will never be a danger to society ever again. There was a particular scenario that caused them to kill someone. And they'll probably never kill anybody ever again. They really wouldn't be a threat to society, but they committed that murder that one time because they were driven to it. That was a novel. I have no idea if that's true or not, but I thought it would make a good sermon illustration. Um, You know, that that you could have someone who would be in, in ordinary circumstances, no danger to anyone else, but might have been driven to it. Why? Because the root of murder grew up in their heart and grew out into their hands to commit that kind of sin. And I think we can be helped when we think about Scripture and what it says about murder to recognize the root of it and to understand the ruin that it will bring if left unchecked so that we apply ourselves to the remedy. Um, And that's how I really want to think about the sin of murder this evening and how God tells us to root this out of our lives. So I want to think about the root of murder and I want to think about the ruin of murder and then I want to think about the remedy against murder. Now, I'm going to do this in a way that we've not done before, so this might be the last time I try this. Um, But as I was studying this passage and studying this sin this week, I was drawn to the story of murder um, that's told in 2 Samuel 3, um, where Joab takes it upon himself to murder Abner. And so what I really want to do is talk about the root of murder in that story in the Old Testament, because you see all of those things that the Catechism talks about, hatred, envy, vengefulness, anger at work in that murder Um, and so i want to think about the root of murder from that passage and to think about the ruin it brings and then to kind of return to romans 12 to talk about the remedy to murder does that sound like a plan we'll see how it goes but that's at least the plan Okay, so I want to think about this, and I want to think about this from the perspective of what the Catechism talks about, particularly in question 106. Does this commandment refer only to murder? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, envy, hatred, anger, vengefulness. In God's sight, all such are disguised forms of murder. Envy, hatred, anger, vengefulness. Uh, that's what lies at the root of murder. And we see that in the story of Joab murdering Abner. Um, We're gonna read about that in a minute from 2 Samuel 3, Um, but but there's always a lot to these stories and I didn't wanna read chapters and chapters with you, as fun as that would be to do. Um, I wanted to center in on the story, but some of the context is important. Who was Joab? He was the captain of David's army. He was the captain of the armies of Judah. Um, And Abner, who he murdered, was the captain of the armies of Saul. This was after King Saul had died and there was a kind of power struggle in Israel for who would take charge. And David's armies were fighting against Saul's armies. So Joab was leading David's armies against Saul's people and Abner was leading Saul's army against David's people. And we're told in, in 2 Samuel they were at war for a long time. And as this war proceeded, David was getting, what side was David on? David was getting stronger and stronger, and Saul was getting weaker and weaker. And they were fighting with each other. In one particular battle, at the Battle of Gibeon, they were fighting, these two armies were fighting, and Joab's brother, Azahel, was chasing after Abner. Now, Azahel, we're told, was a really fast guy. He could run as fast as a gazelle. He was really fleet-footed. So he's one of David's soldiers, and he's chasing after Abner. So he has in his sights the captain of Saul's army, and he's running after him, and he's so fast that Abner can't get away from him. But a couple of times, Abner looks over his shoulder and says, is that you chasing me? He says, yeah, I'm going to get you. This is the paraphrase. Okay, this is the paraphrase. Yeah, I'm, I'm coming for you. And he says, turn aside from me and fight with somebody else. And Azahel keeps chasing him, and he says again, turn aside from following me and go after somebody else, because he doesn't want to fight with this guy. He doesn't want to fight with Joab's brother. He actually says to him in 2 Samuel 2.22, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? He's trying not to fight with him. He's trying not to kill him, but he's not fast enough to get away from him. And he won't turn away from following him, so finally Abner has to turn and stand his ground, and he strikes down Azahel. Now, Azahel has two brothers, one of whom is Joab, and one of whom is Abishai, who was one of David's mighty men, and they chase after him, trying to bring him to death. Um, But the two armies fight to a standstill, and they don't actually bring Abner to death but Abner's killed their brother in combat, in warfare. And then Abner, who is a faithful servant of Saul's people, is betrayed by Saul's people. They accuse him of angling for the throne and they break faith with him. And so he says, you've broken faith with me, I'm gonna go to David, I think the Lord is making him the rightful king anyway. So he goes over and he swears allegiance to David. So he has been the commander of Saul's armies, but he comes over to David and he says, I think David is the true king and I'm going to swear allegiance to him. And not only that, Abner persuades the men of Israel to come over and make David their king. And so it seems like the civil war has been averted, it's been put to an end, because Abner, who's been this great champion against David's people, has now come over to David's side and made peace with him. So he swears loyalty to David, they have a party sort of celebrating this. Meanwhile, Joab is out fighting, he's on a raid, and he comes home to find out that David's made peace with this enemy of his, this guy who killed his brother. And now they're, the war's over, and apparently this guy is now on their same side, this guy who killed his brother. And that's the setting for what happens in 2 Samuel 3. So if you turn there with me in God's word to 2 Samuel 3. 2 Samuel 3, beginning our reading at verse 26. We hear the story of what Joab does to Abner. So Abner has come and gone from David's presence. And Joab has just arrived to find that Abner's been and made peace. And this is what happens immediately after that. So in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 26, we read this. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Syrah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Azahel, his brother." Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner, because he had put their brother Azahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Uh, thus far the reading of that passage of the Lord's word. Uh, you see this, this, this murder that grows out, and the root of murder that the catechism describes is right here. Um, it's, it's easy to understand why he hates Abner for killing his brother, why he's angry with him. The vengefulness, the desire to have his brother's blood avenged. Um, And even envy, I think, is present. Calvin, in his sermons on this section of 2 Samuel, really helpfully says, you know, Abner has been a great commander. And he's shown himself not only to be an effective warrior, but he's also shown himself to be an effective peacemaker. Um, Abner's only skill is not making war. Abner can also make peace. Abner was a great man in that regard. Um, And as Abner comes in as a great commander, who's not only a great wartime commander, but is also a great peacemaker, he's going to be a great resource to David as a man of peace. Because David will win victory over all of his enemies and put the kingdom at peace. Joab is a man of war, but Joab seems to have a problem with the peace. He seems to be an effective warrior but not an effective peacetime general. And so Calvin, I think, helpfully says there's probably a lot of envy going on here as well, because Joab could well have feared that Abner will supplant him in terms of greatness in the king's service, because he's shown himself to be more than just a fighter. And so all of these things are going on in Joab. There's hatred, and there's envy, and there's anger, and there's vengefulness. And he plots the destruction of Abner, lures him away to a kind of convenient, out-of-the-way place, and strikes him down. And even though we're not told specifically that Abishai was part of this, he also shares in the blame for this murder. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, avenged. So he managed to bring his brother into this as well, made him a party to this murder, even though Abishai had been one of David's mighty men, had been a great servant of the Lord as well. This is all what's going on. This is the root of murder that grows out. And we see the ruin that this murder brings. The Lord wants us to pay attention to the root of murder and how it works in lives, to also understand the ruin that it brings. There was great ruin brought to the kingdom because of this Murder. Uh, What what is one of the reasons that the kingdom was ruined through this? A good man was destroyed. Um, When David describes Abner later in chapter 3 to his servants, he said, Do you not know that a great prince, that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? A loyal servant to the king, someone who had pledged loyalty to. To David, the king, who had not left his other king's service until the king had broken faith with him. He was not some kind of turncoat. You know, he wasn't a Benedict Arnold turning away from his own people to follow someone else. He had been faithful to his king until his king was no longer faithful to him. And he had sworn loyalty to David in part because he recognized that the Lord was giving the kingdom into David's hand. He, was, he had been a loyal servant of the king. He would pledged loyalty to David. He would made peace in Israel from this long war that had been going on between the men of Judah and the men of Israel. And by this treachery, by this act of murder, what does Joab do? He deprives the kingdom of a a prince and a great man. He's destroyed from the kingdom. And in doing this, Joab doesn't just destroy Abner, he destroys himself. He had been David's captain. He had been the one leading David's armies in battle. He was the one that the king had trusted. But then he goes and does this without the king's leave. He he doesn't have orders to do this. We're specifically told David did not know what he was doing. Um, He went out and did this on his own motion. And what did he do to himself? He brought down all of the covenant curses on his own head. That's the point of David cursing Joab there, cursing him and his family line. He's saying, May the covenant curses fall on you as a covenant breaker because you acted against the people of God. And so that he is cursed by David and he's executed by Solomon. Joab is one of the people that's on David's list when he dies. When he says to Solomon, remember Joab and what he did, and you'll be the king and you do what's right, but don't let his gray hair go down to Sheol in peace. You make sure that, that justice is visited on him for the crime that he did. And how was that crime described in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 5? He, he avenged in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and put the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Um, Warfare means you have to fight against other people. But the injustice of his act was to avenge in time of peace what was done in war. Um, I remember seeing the, the HBO series on Band of Brothers that was all about the The airborne in uh, the second world war one of the interesting things to me was one of the guys who had seen a lot of combat in that war at one point they're interviewing him as an old man and he's a very soft-spoken guy and he says you know I think in other circumstances the guys I was fighting we might have been good friends I like to fish and I think they would have liked to fish and I think if we'd met in other circumstances we probably would have been good friends but in the circumstances we were in, I was fighting for my country, and he was fighting for his country, and I was trying to kill him, and he was trying to kill me. But he said, I, think that, I don't think that made him a bad person. I think he was doing what I was trying to do, to fight for my country. And I thought, that, that's a remarkable way that probably only a soldier in combat could understand something like that. Um, I won't pretend to understand it, but it struck me that the, these people that he had fought with, he could still say in the time of peace, we might well have been friends. That he was doing what he was supposed to do for his country, and I was doing what I was supposed to do for my country. It was very much the kind of thing I'd heard from my grandfather who'd been in combat in World War II. Um, and that's what I think what David is saying. You know, in war you have to do things. When they're fighting us and we're in a war... You have to kill people in war. But what you may not do is avenge in peacetime blood that was shed in war. Seek private murder, revenge for what happened. He says that's what Joab did. The war was over. Abner was on his side. And he murdered him in cold blood. And David says to Solomon, this cannot be tolerated in the kingdom of God. This has to be visited on him. And David left that to Solomon as king to do. David, having won the war, now tells Solomon to win the peace and to make sure that Joab is executed. And that's what Solomon does. Um, when he's told where Joab is, he gives the order, strike him down and bury him, and thus take away from me and my father's house the guilt of the, for the blood that Joab shed without cause. The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head, because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself, Abner the son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa the son of Jether, the commander of the army of Judah. So shall their blood come back on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. But for David and for his descendants, for his house and for his throne, there shall be peace from the Lord forevermore now why why get into all that not just to show that justice was visited on joab but to show the ruin that he brought on himself and to show us what this passage teaches us about how god feels about murder because the kings are acting in the lord's name um, giving the lord's justice and what does this passage teach us that's really the ruin that it brings it brings you under the curse of the king and subject to the execution of the king. Right, this is a serious offense. This is serious ruin that it brings down upon those who are guilty of this sin. Because just as King David and King Solomon brought curse and death upon Joab for this murder, so King Jesus will do when he comes again in glory to all evildoers. He brings curse and death to those who have committed injustice in the world. Uh, thinking about this story of what David and Solomon did and thinking about how this relates to the second coming of Christ, one of the commentators made an interesting comment. He said, The security of the kingdom requires the elimination of its enemies. The kingdom must be preserved from those trying to destroy and undermine it. This text then has a last day dimension to it. For as Matthew thirteen forty through 43 says, So it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. When Christ comes again in glory, he is going to root out all wickedness in this world. The security of his kingdom depends on it. The security of his subjects depends on it. And as a good and faithful king, he will root it out until he finds none of it. So that it will be a kingdom fit for the righteous to inhabit. So that his people will shine like the sun in the kingdom of his father. That's what the new heavens and the new earth really represent. And all those who are still in their sin, who have not repented, will face the judgment of the king when he comes. Um, It's a reminder to us of just how serious sin is. And it's a reminder to us who have put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, just what we have been saved from. Because had the Lord not intervened on our behalf, when the king came again in glory to do justice, we would be recipients of the king's justice. We would face the curse for our sins. We would face the death that our sins deserved. And that's what the glory of Jesus Christ coming into the world, not as the glorious king, but first as the suffering servant, that he could do what? Face the king's justice for us on our behalf and put it away. Because he knew that if he came again just in glory, it would mean the destruction of all the wicked. And because of the love the Father had for us and because of the love Jesus had for us, he came into the world to go to his cross and face the king's justice on our behalf. He paid the curse and the death that our sins deserve there so that it might be turned away from us, so that we, he came again in glory, it would not be to deal with sin, for he had already dealt with our sin. It will be to bring us into the righteousness of his kingdom. That's why we, we want to think about the ruin that murder brings, not just so that we realize the seriousness of sin and the curse and death it brings down on those who will not submit to the king, but so that we can remember from what we've been saved. Uh, that we are filled with gratitude for the Lord who has rescued us from the ruin into which we've plunged ourselves by our acts of murder and the things that we do against him. Thanks be to God for the inexpressible gift of his son that saves us from the wrath that's coming. But the Word of God also teaches us something else about even believers and how we ought to think about the wrath that's coming. What that idea of the God who's coming again in glory to judge the heavens and the earth should motivate us in our activity. It should not fill us with fear because perfect love drives out fear. We don't have to fear the judgment because the Lord is coming. But the Lord's coming should make us all the more diligent to serve Him. That's the argument Peter makes in 2 Peter three, ten through 14. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace." Even for the believer that doesn't fear the judgment because we have received the promise of God in Jesus Christ, the the notion that this judgment is coming should motivate us to strive that much more to be holy. Knowing what the ruin of sin has brought, it should cause us to want to root it out of our lives more and more. And if we want to root out those kinds of things in our lives, hatred and envy and vengefulness, um, and anger, what, what do we need to do? Well, we need to find the remedy for those things. And that's really what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 12. Now, if you're panicking and saying, oh, we're just now going to go back to Romans 12, how will we ever escape? Um, we're not gonna, we don't have time to go through everything that Romans 12 has to say. But I want to highlight some particular things that Paul says that I do think help us as we think about um, those, those, those four particular things that are at the root of murder. Hatred and anger and envy and vengefulness. Um, Because that's what Paul is really doing here. That's what the true marks of the Christian life are doing. They're the virtues that drive out the vices. They're the things that we put on that will help us to put off the things that we know God hates. And the first thing Paul says that will help us, the first remedy, we're not going to go through all of these. I want to just kind of think of them in a sort of snapshot and kind of categorize them together but what is the first thing that paul says there has to be there has to be genuine love let love be genuine and the word he uses there for love is that agape love that christian love in particular that we hear about and he says not only do we have to be loving that love has to be genuine I don't know if you had time to think about it as I was reading the story and recounting those things, but if you were Abner, and you'd killed Joab's brother, and Joab had said to you, hey, would you come meet me around the corner in that dark place for a second? Could you come into this dark alley with me? I just want to say something to you. Um, We'd all say, I don't think so. I don't think that's a good idea. Maybe as you're reading this, you kind of thought to yourself, or maybe if you think with me about it now... Why would Abner be such a sucker? Why wasn't he on his guard for something like this? And I think the answer is because Abner's love was genuine. He had pledged loyalty to David. He knew he was at peace with the king. And he looked to Joab and said, you're a man who's loyal to the king. We are at peace with each other. And what happened in war happens in war. But we are now at peace. I think his love for David's kingdom was genuine. And that's why I think it didn't enter his mind that Joab would do something like that. To avenge in peace blood that was shed in war. I think that was in part what happened there. Abner's love for David's kingdom was genuine. And he didn't suspect this kind of treachery. And that's in a sense what made that sin so bad, because at this point not only are they, you know, they're not just combatants in war, they're they're at peace, they're co-members of the same kingdom. He should have looked at him and seen a brother, not an enemy. And that was the real problem with what happened. And that's why when there are sins inside the kingdom of God, that's so particularly heinous. It's always evil to hate people, to be angry, to envy, to want vengeance. Those things are wicked. And it's bad enough when we feel like that about people who are outside the kingdom of God, but it's even worse when we feel like that about fellow Christians, I always think of what one Puritan said, Thomas Brooks. He said, "'Discord and division become no Christians, "'for wolves to worry the lambs is no wonder. "'But for one lamb to worry another, "'this is unnatural and monstrous. "'God has made his wrath to smoke against us "'for the divisions and heartburnings "'that have been amongst us. "'Labor for a oneness in love and affection "'with everyone that is one with Christ.'" Um, I always think of that as a vivid image because he said, you know, if you watch a nature video, he didn't have videos, but he's essentially saying if you watch a nature video and you watch a wolf attack a lamb, you think, well, you know what, that's nature, that's what wolves do, they attack lambs. You don't wonder at that. But imagine you're watching a nature video and two little lambs were dancing around and all of a sudden one just, you know, uncorked his jaw like a snake and just hit the other one. You think, what am I watching? This is horrific. Um, and that's essentially what he's saying, when, when, you're, when two lambs start, start eating each other, that's a terrible, awful, horrible thing to think about. It's unnatural. It's such a wicked thing for it to happen, and that's why Paul says, you know, the remedy to this is genuine love. The genuine kind of love that God works among his people so that we love the things he loves and we hate the things that he hates to work in us a genuine love for God that will cause us to love things that are good and absolutely hate and abhor things that are evil. Um, It's a strong word for love that Paul uses. It's a strong word for hate that he uses. But what do we hate? Not other people, but things that are evil, right? Joab should have hated this kind of thing as a great evil. And so Paul says, let your love be genuine. The Christian love that will also feed into brotherly love. Paul also uses the word Philadelphia here, which we all know brotherly love. So he says, let your your agape be genuine and then let your Philadelphia flow out. Your love to your brother flow out. He uses another word for brotherly love, the, the dear affection of the family. He says, that's what has to be grown amongst us. That genuine love for God and that genuine affection of family that does what? Makes you zealous to serve one another. That makes us zealous to do things for other people. To be faithful in our service to them as dearly loved family members. We do that when we consider others better than ourselves. We do that when we think of others the way Jesus thinks of others, better, better than themselves. Paul says that's what helps us to be servants, faithful servants, zealous servants, to really want to help one another. When we love one another and think highly of them, we'll burn with zeal to help each other. Um, that will help to drive out any kind of envy If you love someone and you want the best for them and you value them more than you value yourself, you won't care if they get something better than you. Because you'll be glad that they're getting something. You'd be happy to do it for them. You see how that helps to drive out that kind of feeling. Um, It's a powerful remedy against envy. It's a powerful remedy against hatred. It's a powerful remedy against anger. To love and to burn not with anger, but to burn with zeal for people. And that's why Paul is saying, these are the things we need to put on. These are the things that we need to practice. These are the remedies to murder and other kinds of sin. And what particularly about vengefulness at the root of murder? Because I think of all of those wicked feelings and impulses that drove Joab to kill Abner, it had to be vengefulness that was really one of the chief aspects of what drove his murder. Because when he had a chance to kill him in war, he couldn't quite bring it about. Um, And now that they were at peace, there was no opportunity for him to go out and try to kill Abner. And it was out of this sense of vengeance That's what really drove him to murder him. He wasn't going to have the chance to exact his revenge in war, so he exacted it in peace. It was really vengefulness. And what does Paul say here that helps us think about vengefulness? What are the things that will help be a remedy against that? Well, the first thing he says is hope will be a remedy against vengefulness. Christians, as one commentator said, are filled with joy due to the hope that awaits them. And joy evaporates when hope vanishes, and thus the fires of joy can only be stoked by focusing on hope. How do we avoid a vengeful spirit as Christians? One of the ways is to remember the hope that we live in, that there's a just king coming who will set right whatever is wrong in the world. I don't have to pursue justice on my own or somehow figure out how to get justice for myself. There's a just king who's coming. And he will make sure that justice is done. That's one of the comforts that Psalm 10 tells us to reflect on when we see the evil and the wickedness in the world of people who are constantly perpetrating evil on people and seem to never be called to the carpet for it. The psalmist is encouraged to say, but the Lord is in heaven and he notes wickedness and vexation and he will come and he will hunt it out of the world until he finds none of it. He has always been the protector of the fatherless and the helper of the poor. Um, And he is the Lord and the king forever. That's the hope in which the psalmist lives in a world of injustice. I don't need to take justice because I have a king who will do it. I'm hoping in the king that's coming. And that will keep me from the bitterness of vengefulness and keep me in joy. Patience also is required. Right? Um, patience is required because it's hard for us to do that. To wait for God to make it right. In um, our arrogance, our pride, we say, I'll make it right. I can't wait for you to do it. And so it's call for patiently enduring tribulation And finally, for trusting in the Lord to do what he'll do. Paul really powerfully in this section says, you know the reason you don't need to avenge yourself? Because the Lord has said, I will repay. Vengeance is mine. I'm the God of justice. And what that calls for in the Christian life is then to trust God to be the just God he says he is. Now, all of those things are really hard for us. It's very hard to let love be genuine and to love one another like brothers and to hope in the Lord's coming and to be patient for Him to come and to trust in Him to do what's right. We want to fail at all of those places. And as I list those virtues, I hope we're all saying, boy, I could use a lot more of each. Um, And so that should drive us To constantly be praying for the grace and the help of the Holy Spirit. To give us the graces we need to root out the murder that's in our hearts. To root out all of those disguised forms of murder. So that we would begin to be people who love one another. And who are not burning with anger, but burning with zeal to serve. And who are willing to hope in God and to be patient for his coming, and to trust in the king of the whole earth to do what's right. We have a king who's just, and he's coming. And he will see that things are put right. We don't need to put them right ourselves. And when we're tempted to, when we're tempted to assert, we need justice now. um, Then maybe we should think for ourselves, what would have happened to us if God had said that about us? They need justice now. Certainly, we all would have been consumed. The Lord teaches us to love one another and leave vengeance to Him. May the Lord work these graces in our hearts by His Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we come to you recognizing that there is too much envy and hatred and anger and vengefulness. That is living in our own hearts and that we see far less love and hope and patience and trust than we would desire to see so we pray that you would give us the grace and the help of your spirit to fix our eyes on jesus as the just king who will see to it that everything is right and by his grace and because of the work of his cross save us from all forms of murder disguised or open And work in us that grace and goodness that is fitting for citizens of your heavenly kingdom. Help us in this, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.